Um, in 2001, Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great, and it went on to become one of the most popular business books in the last 20 years. Any, anyone read that book, Good to Great? All right. Um, it became so popular that even church pastors were jumping on the bandwagon to learn some principles on leadership greatness. And so before I came here, uh, our staff, we read that book as well. And so we were, we were part of that kind of frenzy. And um, the most famous quote of that book uh, was probably this statement. This is what Jim said, as if I'm friends with him. Uh, Good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government principally because we have good government. Few people attain great lives in large part because it is so easy to settle for a good life. The first time I read that quote, uh, I thought it was profound. I thought it was inspiring. But now as I think about that quote again, I find it vain and naive. I, thought, I think it's vain and naive. I should have known something was off when Collins and his team, they listed Circuit City as one of the great companies in America. And um, I, for one, would love good schools. I, for one, would love good government in our state and in our country today. When did we start looking down on good things in pursuit of the great? What does it say what does it say about our hearts when we think good things are not good enough for us? When we think good things are not good enough for our children and we go pursuing this mirage of greatness? When did we start thinking good is settling? Right? Uh, single people, if you meet a good guy or a good girl, that's not settling. There's something beautiful about goodness. What if what we really need is to stop chasing greatness and start pursuing more goodness in our lives? You see, the thing about goodness is that it can stand on its own. Okay, goodness can stand on its own. It doesn't need a competitor, and it doesn't need to be better than someone or something else to be valuable, to be precious. Goodness can stand on its own, but greatness Greatness is always in comparison. Greatness always needs competition. It always has to be exceptional. You see, everyone can't all be great. If every single one of us was great, you know what that makes us? Average, right? We are average together. I remember at USC, there was something called the Marshall Curve. Marshall Curve. And the goal was to have the entire class average down to like about a B, B minus. And so that meant if the average class scored like a 94 on an exam, 94 would then be a B. And you had to score 96 or 98 to get B plus, A minus, A, and all of that. That's what greatness does to us. Greatness needs someone to beat, someone or something to be better than. Now the Bible describes God as good far more than it describes him as great. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying God isn't great. He, he is great. He's the greatest. God is the greatest for sure. But it's interesting. The greatness of God is not considered one of his eternal, essential attributes. Okay, there's a lot of attributes of God, right? His love, 
his justice, his holiness. And goodness is one of God's eternal, essential attributes. But greatness is not. Why? Because once again, greatness needs comparison. And in the beginning, before God created the heavens and the earth, there was no one and nothing else. It was only our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they were not competing against each other. They were not saying, who is the greatest among us? It's the disciples who had that vain, childish conversation, right? But not in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in power, glory, and honor. You see, if you only have one cup of coffee in the entire world, that cup is simultaneously the greatest and the worst cup of coffee, right? If there's only one cup, it's the best and the worst. But all that matters, the most important question is, is it good? Is it good, right? Our Resolve coffee bar, it is good. It is good. That's why goodness is an attribute of God. He has always been and will always be good. God's greatness only matters in the light of rival and false gods. It's when we started worshiping the vain things of this world that we had to see that God is better, that God is greater than these idols and false gods that we worship. But before that, the question of who is the greatest, the question of whether is God great or not, that was not in play. God's goodness endures forever. Greatness, if you read through our passage on the fruit of the Spirit, it's not one of the fruits. Greatness is not one of the fruit of the Spirit, but goodness is. In our series throughout each week, we've been reading, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You see, as we study the fruit of the Spirit um, in this series, we're not just learning about how we should behave more morally or ethically. We're actually learning about who God is. We're learning about the moral nature of God. We're learning about the heart of our God, who he is and what he does. Today, as we talk about the fruit of goodness, my goal is to show you that God is good and what that means. I want to show you that he has purposed you and I to also be good as he is good. And that he has provided for us a way. Not just a command to be good, but he has provided for us a way to be good. Those are the three points. The goodness of God, our purpose for good, and the way to become good. I think that's my baby. Yeah, I think that's Seth. In Luke 18, a rich young man famously approached Jesus. He famously approached Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, before he answers, he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now in Jesus' response, he wasn't denying his own goodness. In fact, Jesus is the goodness of God incarnate. He is the goodness of God embodied. Rather than uh, denying his own goodness, he was actually redirecting the young man's attention towards the goodness of God. Not just calling a rabbi or a teacher or a wise man good, but to look 
to God, who is the ultimate example, ultimate source of goodness. Now, what does it mean for God to be good? We sing. We sing of God's goodness all the time, right? We sing that God is a good, good father. We have all heard that refrain, God is good, all the time, and all the time, God is good. But let's take a moment and put some meat on those bones, Stephen Sharnock uh, was a 17th century Puritan theologian, and he wrote a book called The Existence and Attributes of God. And he makes four introductory statements about the goodness of God. First, he says this. He says, first, God is originally good in and by himself. Okay? No one or nothing makes God good. Just because we sing that song every week for an entire year doesn't make God good. Right? He is good. And he breathes his goodness upon all creation. Okay? If you remember the Genesis account, after each day, after his work of creation, he looked upon it and he says, it was good. It is good. He breathes his goodness upon creation. All goodness that we experience in life, it's derivative of God's goodness. The second thing that Sharnock says is, God is not only in and of himself good, he is infinitely good. He is boundless goodness that knows no limits. And he has this great illustration. He says, whatever goodness you and I experience, right, whether it's a good cup of coffee, a sunrise or a sunset in creation, a great conversation, a moment with friendship, in friendship, whatever goodness we experience in life, it is but a sip. It is but a sip of his infinite fountain. Thirdly and fourthly, He says that God is perfectly and immutably good. Immutably means unchanging. He is perfectly and always good. This means that he is so good, he cannot be bad. Okay, He is so good, he cannot, and he never will be bad. He will never do bad unto us. He will never do bad or malice unto creation. And his goodness is unchanging. He is perfectly good in all of his ways. This is is our God. Those are four things about God's goodness, but what is it? What is God's goodness? Let me answer that now. The best description of God's goodness is found in Exodus 34, 6, and it's pretty interesting that the last couple weeks, Pastor DC and I, we've been referring to this very same passage because it tells us so much about the heart and the character of God. God tells Moses in Exodus 33, he says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. If you remember that exchange, Moses says, show me your glory. God, will you show me your glory? And God says, yes, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He meets the Lord. And the Lord comes down in this glory of a cloud. And he proclaims over Moses, the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the goodness of God. You see, what the goodness of God is, is it's who he is poured out and displayed to us. Okay, that's that's God's goodness, right? It's God communicating who he is. Showing us his heart, showing us his attributes, speaking and singing those things over us. That's what he did for Moses. That's what he did before Israel. That's what he does before us. As he reveals himself to us 
He is showing us his goodness. Another way to understand God's goodness is by his generosity. And I promise this is not schemed to line up with our generosity series. Um, I was doing a, a study on the fruit of the Spirit, and for the word generosity, right, another definition for, or, uh, for goodness, another definition for goodness was generosity. And just to double check, I went through all of these like Greek lexicons, which are like yeah, commentaries, and, and over and again, it was, it was moral uprightness, right? Ethical perfection, generosity. Okay? God's goodness is him being generous with and about himself to us. Not remaining in hiding, right? Not remaining veiled and distant from us. When God shows himself to us, he is being good. He is being generous towards us. He freely gives of himself to us, and that's good. Creation was an act of his goodness. Adoption, when you and I get to be sons and daughters of God, that comes from his heart of goodness. Every good and perfect gift that we receive in life, it comes as a result of God's goodness. His graciousness towards us. To quote Sharnock once again, he writes, By goodness is meant the bounty of God. The goodness of God is his inclination to deal well and bountifully with his creation, with us. Now think about that, right? Even in our culture today, apart from Christianity and apart from our Christian verbiage, just think about this. What makes a rich person good? Is it Getting richer, right? That doesn't make a rich person good in the eyes of our world, right? A rich person is regarded as good when they are financially generous towards others, right? What makes a powerful person good? It's not when they acquire more power, not when they just enjoy power and privilege for themselves. It's when they use their power, when they use their influence for the benefit of others, especially for the benefit of those who are powerless. When powerful people use their power for others, that's when we say, wow, that person is good. That person is upright. That person is moral and ethical. What makes a wise person good? It's when they share their insight and offer counsel to those seeking and needing guidance. You see, generosity is goodness. Generosity through its various forms. It really is an expression of goodness. And God is the highest goodness because he doesn't act solely for his own profit, but he acts bountifully for our welfare, for our good. He is absolutely generous with himself towards us. And that's why our God is good. Goodness is tied with generosity. Let's go back to the rich young ruler. Right? So he asked Jesus, good, good teacher, what must I do to inherit good, eternal life? Why do you call me good? No one's good except for God. After this, Jesus reminds him. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, 
said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. A lot of ink has been spilt on this passage to try to make sense of it. And what does that take? Do we all have to take a vow of poverty, sell our possessions to inherit the kingdom of God? I hope and pray Jesus isn't saying that. We all do. We're like, come on, Jesus, you don't really mean that. Many have have said, you know, it's because Jesus knew that that he was rich off of unethical means. He was stealing or or, um, fraudulent, whatever it might be. And so Jesus just went straight to that that, that, that sinful behavior that that this rich young ruler was hiding. But I, I don't think that those are the answers. What the rich young ruler lacked was an understanding of the goodness of God. What he lacked was a willingness to be like God, who is good, through generosity. This wasn't a test of poverty. Jesus wasn't saying, are you willing to be poor for my sake? Right? It was a test of generosity. Would you, young man, be generous? Would you be good as God is good. One final note about God's goodness and generosity. Whenever we think about generosity, we always think that, man, that generosity comes from abundance, right? It comes from plenty. God's ba- God is infinite in goodness, so for him to pour out his goodness upon us, that's just overflow, right? That, that's easy and accessible. And so when we think about generosity as abundance, right, as excess, and so we're like, we'll let it spill over to my neighbors or for my family members or for the poor, whatever it might be, um, we tell ourselves we don't need to be generous because we don't have that much. Like, God, you know me, right, paycheck to paycheck. And actually I go into the red a little bit, so credit card debt chases after me, right? Chase is on the chase, right? And so we, thank you, thank you. Um, I don't have very many like built-in jokes, so y'all got to giggle at the cheesy things. And so when we have this approach towards generosity, we're like, hey, let's leave it to the wealthy people. Let's leave it to the one percenters, right? But God's greatest example of his goodness and generosity, right, it's demonstrated in the gospel. Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the generosity of our God. A God who loved you and I. A God who loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. He didn't have an infinite number of sons just to throw down and say, you go to the cross and don't worry, I got a a hundred more of you guys. One beloved son. And he did not spare him. He sent him to the cross to die. So that you and I could receive eternal life. That you and I would be forgiven of our sins. That we would be spared from eternal damnation. That we could be inheritors of God's kingdom. God's goodness towards us is costly. Goodness and generosity, brothers and sisters, in its most beautiful form, it is costly. What if the things that are most precious to you, whether it's your family, whether it is your finances, whether it's your free time, your gifts, your, 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 your relational 
uh, capacity, whatever it might be, what if those things that are the most precious to you are your greatest opportunities to demonstrate generosity? What if those are your greatest opportunities to practice goodness? Goodness unto one another. Goodness unto your neighbor. Goodness for the glory of God. Now, not only are we recipients of God's goodness, we are called to be imitators of that goodness as well. This is one of the great purposes for our salvation. You may be familiar with the great gospel verses of Ephesians 2.8.9, especially if you grew up in the church. You, you, I, hopefully, I hope you sang that song. It's a great way to memorize verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We love this verse. We're saved not by works, but wholly by the grace of God. We love that because we're like, I, I can't get our, myself into heaven. We're not good enough. We all fall short, and so there is grace, right? He is sufficient. We love and rest in that verse. But we often forget the very next verse, which reads 4, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And walking is, again, a metaphor for living. That we should live a life of good works. Live a life that testifies and shows the world and our families and our friends and our neighbors the goodness of God. The grace of God and who he is. Remember Genesis. After God creates the heavens and the earth. After God creates all of the vegetation and all of the animals and the land on the sky and in the sea, after he creates Adam and Eve, he looks and beholds and he says, it was good. But something happened in the garden. Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. And as they sinned, death came. Death entered in. And the goodness of God wasn't forever lost, but it was marred. Creation was marred. We, as the image bearers of God, we became marred and stained by sin. We were designed, we were created to live in the goodness of God, in the goodness of creation. But because of sin, we lost so much of that pleasure, so much of that experience, so much of that privilege. And what Jesus Christ does as our Redeemer, as our Savior, is not just Spare us of our sins. Forgive us of our sins. He doesn't just pay for our sins. He doesn't just justify us. A huge part of his mission is to be a redeemer and a restorer. And he wants to restore the goodness of God, the goodness of human relationships, the goodness of creation in our lives for us. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. To live out life in goodness. God has prepared those things beforehand. Before even the foundation of the world. God designed us. He knew he wanted us to be his image bearers. He wanted us to walk in goodness. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote. Kind of reflecting these two ideas. Being fully saved by grace. And being purposed for good. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good but that God will make us good because he loves us. Let me read that again. 
The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. This is one of God's great purposes in your life. He wants to make you good. He wants to make you good. And this is a crucial question we must ask ourselves every day. Am I being good? Am I living in the goodness of God? Am I reflecting the goodness of God? And we should do this with all of the fruit of the Spirit. Is the gospel bearing fruit in my life? Does the work, does the blood of Jesus, does the power of the Holy Spirit, does the cross make any difference? Not just positionally between us and God making sure we get into heaven, but does he make a difference in your heart, in your thought life, in your ethics, in your decisions, in your character? Is the grace of God making you a more loving, joyful, patient, kind, and good person? Husbands, ask your wives. Since you've been coming to all nations, has there been change and transformation? Parents, ask your children, right? Young adults, college students, ask your friends. Ask your parents, whoever it might be. Is there a change in me? Do you sense and see me becoming more patient, more kind, more gracious? Or am I going in the opposite direction, right? If you're more short-tempered, if you're more rude, selfish, divisive, Gospel's not bearing fruit in your life. So where should we be doing the works of God? In short, to everyone and everywhere, right? To not discriminate. God didn't show partiality. We're not called to either. We're not enabled to either. We should do good and show good to everyone and everywhere we go. We should bring the goodness of God into our homes, into our workplace, at our schools, in our community, in the church. You know, Paul tells the church Do good, especially in the household of God, especially to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do good to one another. Now here's the struggle that each and every one of us have. I think that we have people and places where we are good. Okay, But the problem is our goodness and generosity is truncated. There are some of you that um, are really good at church. When it's community groups, small groups, service, mission trip, retreat, you are so sacrificial, you're so patient, you're so present, you're generous with your time and your energy and your resources, and then when you go to work, your coworkers don't even know you're Christian. Right? That happened with one of my um, old Sunday school leaders. Right? He was a real good mentor to me. I was hanging out with one of his coworkers, and he was like, I didn't even know you're a Christian. Right? And they were joking around about it. I was sad. I was, how could you be so godly to me at church? And your friends don't even know. There are some of you who give your best at work. You manage many employees. You know that if you want to lead a team well, you have to be patient. You have to mentor. You have to coach. You have to be gracious. And then you get home and you have no patience for your kids. You have no thoughtfulness towards your wife. Right? You give your best to work and you... And you give your worst, right? You go on cruise control when you get home. Is that you? There are some of you here today who you are such a good friend. 
I mean, you will drive down to San Diego to pick up a friend and bring them up to L.A. because they need you, right? And you guys are going to go hang out together and say, I got you. We're good. You'll sacrifice for your friends. You'll loan your friends money. But when your sibling asks, you're like, you're dead to me, right? You will not honor your parents. You're so rude to them, but you're so polite to your friends. Our goodness is truncated. Where is goodness lacking in your life? Where is generosity lacking in your life? Many of us will do good to one another. And when we see someone less fortunate in our community, we turn the other way. We'll walk on the other side of the street. Right? We'll avoid eye contact, whatever it might be. But if it's a friend, a community group member right, in need, oh man, we'll be present. I will sacrifice for you. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Fruitful Life, he says this. Accept the cost of good deeds in time, thought, and effort. But remember that opportunities for doing good are not interruptions in God's plan for us, but are part of that plan. We always have time to do what God wants us to do. So you see, we can't cure the world and our community and our society of all its needs for good. There are so many needs that we have, and it can feel overwhelming. Our call is to be obedient to God and do the good that he wants us to do. And in moments, in decisions, in real time, when you have opportunities to, good, to do good unto others, that's when we're called to do good. It's costly, but it's not an interruption. It's part of God's leading in our lives. Last point, how do we become good? How do we do this? Is it just like effort? Just try to listen to this sermon every morning before you start your day? I don't think that's going to happen, right? How do we become good? I want to make this very practical. First, you need to look for evidence of God's goodness in your life. You and I need to remember, before we are called to do good, we are recipients of great good. We have received so much goodness, so much generosity of God in our lives but we are forgetful, right? And we neglect the goodness of God. And so regularly take inventory of all of God's blessings in your life. Consider God's good works, his good provisions in your life. And remember that every good moment, it could be a spiritual moment, right? It could be a just simple situational supplication. All of those moments, all of those gifts, they are derivative of God's goodness. And the more we behold of God's goodness, the more we can become good like God. The more you and I receive, the more we can give. Bearing the fruit of goodness, it is the supernatural work of God. Okay? We can't do it on our own. It doesn't just take grit and resolve and determination. It is the supernatural work of God. But the scriptures are clear. That supernatural work takes place in the context of our relationship with him. As we abide with Jesus and he abides with us, we bear much fruit. As we walk in the Spirit, we will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so friends, fill your minds with God. Fill your hearts with God. Look for evidence of God's goodness in your life. Thank him for those goodnesses and try to reflect those out to others.
Second way to become good. Orient yourself around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Orient yourself. Okay? And, and um, Romans 8.32. I already shared it, but I'm going to read it again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, until you and I understand, truly understand, that everything that we have is a gift from God, goodness and generosity will be a struggle. Okay? It really will be. If you look at your finances and think, this is mine. I mean, Mike, you don't even know how hard I work. You don't know how hard I work to make my house payments, right? my car payments. You don't know how hard I work for my finances. If you treat your finances as your hard money, hard-earned money, and you, and you think that tithing and giving and generosity to the church and to others is out of your possession, out of your pockets, that's not stewardship. That's not stewardship. That's not biblical stewardship. That's you acting like an owner and God as the recipient of your charity. Okay. There's so many of us who act like this. So many of us have this perspective of owners over our possessions, owners over our finances. But the true Christian says, no, even my finances, even the, the 40, 50, 60 hours of work that I put in this week, it is a gift from God. All of it is coming from his benevolent, kind, bountiful hand. That's what stewardship is. And then everything you give to others, everything you give to the church, everything you give to God, it's out of love and out of freedom. If you view your free time, your paid time off, that is so precious, I get it. If you treat that as yours, if you say, you know what, I work five, six days a week, I mean, I come on Sunday, but don't ask for too much else. I don't have the time. I don't have the time. My time is precious. Then volunteering, serving, going on retreats, certainly going on a mission trip will always be a struggle because you're going to see your time is your own. What we need to see is our time belongs to God. God is the one who numbers our days. Every breath that we have, Every beat of our hearts, it is a gift from God. Our, life are not, our lives are not our own. We belong to God. And the list goes on and on and on. Our gifts, our talents, our resources, our children. Are our children ours? You're like It feels like it. Scriptures say they are, they're not ours. We are stewards. Their true Father in heaven is God. And that's tough for me to say. I, want, I'm, I'm, I think I'm Seth's daddy. But as long as you see your children as yours, as long as you see your children as yours, right, you will not live freely as a steward. You will not be able to experience and live out the goodness of God. What are you going to do when your son and daughter says, you know what, I want to go on a mission trip, and I'm going to go to Africa. You're like, no, just let's go together to Tijuana. Where, uh, Tijuana's not even safe anymore. What are you going to do? I was part of a campus ministry for many years, and there would be parents saying, I will not let my child go to this country. It's not safe. I will not let my son or daughter go to that country. And they would dictate everything. With no regard to the calling, no regard to the direction of God, I don't care what God says, this is my will, you are not going to become a pastor. 
you're going to become an engineer or a business major or whatever it might be. Parents, you're called to live out and demonstrate the goodness of God into your children. We are in the midst of gospel generosity campaign. And I know Pastor DC was like, hey, we have a couple weeks. No, we actually have next week. Next week's when it ends. And so the time is on. Uh, we are a quarter away. And I know for some of us, we feel like, man, I don't even know who they are. I've never been to Hope Gardens. I've never been to um, Chapel of the Hills. I just want to tell you, they're not strangers. They're our neighbors. And when the residents of Hope Gardens came into our gym last week, I saw women with children. My son is nine months old. There was a woman with a nine-month-old standing in a cruising in a pack-and-play. And I saw my son there. I imagined him there. There was a mother with a one-month-old. They are our neighbors. God has given us this great opportunity to do good unto them, to show them that our church doesn't just exist for ourselves and our preferences and our comfort, that we exist for God's glory and for this community. Would you consider living out of generosity with your time, treasures, and talents, knowing that that is good, that is the good and beautiful life that God has demonstrated first towards us through the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, and he's called us to live out to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace towards us. Our hearts cannot fathom the fact that you did not spare your own son, but that you gave him up for us all. That is good news. That is beyond. That's beyond us we thank you. We thank you for being so good and gracious towards us, even in the midst of our sin, our rebellion, and our badness towards you and towards one another. Lord, I pray that as we live this Christian life, as we belong to this family here at All Nations, that we would not just hear the gospel, that we would not just enjoy the gospel for ourselves, but we would realize that you have a purpose through the gospel for us. And that is to do the good works, to live the good life that we were called and created to live. Change us, O oh Lord. Make us what we are not. We need your help. We confess that in so many ways we live out of selfishness, envy, greed, and ambition. Father, we have tried to change ourselves and we have failed over again. Help us to cast ourselves wholly before you even right now in this moment and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Change me. Make me more like you. Make me more like Jesus. Make me good. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.